following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. If you would, turn your Bibles back to the Minor Prophets and find the prophet Micah, if you would, please. Brother James uh, has been teaching in our Sunday school in Amos, and he jumped over uh, Obadiah and Jonah and Micah to go to, uh, where is he now, Nahum. Is that right? So, but we're going to just uh, drop in the middle here in Micah chapter 7. Micah is prophesying here sometime between 740 and 686 B.C. He delivers a prophecy to the nations and then to the leaders of the nation of Israel and turns his attention to the people of Israel uh, in the southern and northern kingdoms. Uh, he ends with a marvelous prayer to God. And I'd like us to listen in as he makes this prayer to our God. It says in Micah 7, verse number 14, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. Let me just give you another minute to find your spot there if you don't have. I'm sorry, I make assumptions about these things. I just jump to it. Of course, if you have a tablet or a phone, that's cheating-like. <laughs> you can get there so fast. All right. Back to Micah chapter 7, verse number 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and fear because of you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will again say, uh, have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old." I think you see where this can be a very encouraging word from the prophet for our Lord's table service this morning. Micah, in the first part, in chapter 7, verses 14 to 17, is asking God to provide for his people once again, to feed them and to shepherd them. See, verse 14 says, shepherd your people. Uh, at the time, the prophets were giving a lot of messages of judgment. There was... Uh, shepherding after a fashion. It was shepherding with a strong rod, a strong staff that turned against them in judgment, God effectively turning away from them in mercy and giving them over to the, uh, those who are the oppressors. So Micah asked God to shepherd and feed his people once again. 
And imagine their need for this in their sad situation. If you recall what Brother James has been teaching uh, in the Old Testament prophets and what we've gone over numerous times here, their sad situation living in national disgrace within just a few years or during the time of Micah's ministry, actually, the northern kingdom is destroyed. The ten tribes taken off by Assyria, their land ravaged terrible situation. The south, a little while later, would be dragged off to Babylon. For godly people who lived during that time, there was no end of sorrow because they saw their nation going down the tubes. They saw the the people living in idolatry, uh, giving uh, themselves over to the host of heaven, to false gods, to child sacrifice, to Baals, to Molech, to Chemosh, to all of these terrible things. And the godly in the nation must have been just, just terribly afflicted, vexed in their souls by this. And what would eventually happen is that the north would be destroyed and the south would be left a remnant, just a remnant of people. I'm not talking about the godly remnant necessarily. I'm just saying a small number who would be left behind with no effective governance over them. And you read about that in Jeremiah and some of the other uh, historical books as well in the Bible. Micah prays that God will lead his people. Micah does not pray that man will lead God's people, but that God will lead God's people. You see the difference? Yeah, we don't want man to lead the people of God. He, he desires that God will provide them nourishment and fertile pastures and green regions of the land, that they will dwell in green places. And uh, God will, well, as Psalm 23 says, lead them beside still waters give them rest for their souls, give them nourishment from the finest of pasture. Scripture says in verse 15, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. So he's reflecting on the wonderful history of the people of Israel where God brought them out. Now this would have been, if you are tracking with the dates, as I indicated, about 700 years before Micah wrote. He's saying, look, God, 700 years ago, you brought us out of Egypt. The people saw judgments on Pharaoh. They saw the Egyptian army destroyed. They saw the provision of manna in the wilderness, remember? When they were thirsty, what did God do? Provided them water. When they were contrary and complained against God and he sent serpents among them, then what did he do? He provided a serpent on a, on a pole, a bronze serpent, for them to look at. And if they looked, they would live. They had uh, leadership in the form of Moses They had judgments, all of this in miracle form. They had many a good providence on their way besides all of those miraculous things. Micah is referring to the miraculous here. He's saying, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. Okay, so these are miracles. These are miraculous provisions that God did for them. Uh, Reflect on that in Psalm 78. You don't need to turn there. So you lose your place here in Micah. But Psalm 78, verse number 12. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. Zoan, another name for that region of the world in North Africa. What wonderful things they saw. Of course, how quickly they departed as well from God when they saw those things. Now, when that happens, this is, this is Micah praying, God, shepherd your people, and this will happen in the millennial kingdom. 
This will happen in the future. This prayer will be responded to by God. It will be answered. We will see, the people will see, the nation that is of Israel will see wonders from God. And the nations of the world will also see it. And what does it say in verse 16? They will see it. And, and really verses 16 and 17 cover their, their response to this. When they see the Lord Jesus return to the earth to shepherd his people in the kingdom of heaven, and they see all of God's provision for the people of Israel, then these nations will stand in awed silence. I'm talking about nations like the United States and Russia and Iran and Iraq and Egypt and all the, whatever the renditions of those nations are at that time in the future, the United Nations will sit or stand in awe of what God does with the nation of Israel. They will look at their own military and economic might and recognize that it is relatively nothing. They will look at their gods, so-called, and they will be ashamed. What God does will humiliate them. I will show them wonders, and the nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. There's the silent part of my statement. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. What this is picturing is that they will be humbled before God. They will be brought from on high, as they think they are now, to the lowest place. This will be a huge display of God's power in the nation of Israel. I think it has to be big because the haughtiness of the nations is big. And so to bring down the haughtiness of the nations, there has to be a huge display of God's power and grace. The result will be that they will be afraid of the Lord and will, will fear him. Look at 17. They will crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. This kind of evokes for me Revelation where in that text, uh, God's pouring out judgment on the earth and the, the rich men and the mighty men go and seek caves of the mountains and say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, they'll crawl out from their holes like snakes of the earth, but they will be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Finally, the nations will have a healthy respect for God instead of the, instead of the awful attitude that they have toward him presently. Now, the remnant of those that we're talking about here in this passage, this small group of people, will be those who are shepherded and fed by God and elevated in the sight of the nations. They will be repentant because they recognize their past rebellions against God and they will turn from those rebellions. God doesn't shepherd in this sense people who are rebels against him. So Micah is also praying about the problem that these folks have with their sin. They will turn from their sins. They will seek God's pardon. They will seek the true and living God. And this disposition indicates that they will have become at that time saved people. And as we know, the Bible does tell us in Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved. There will come a point in which the nation is redeemed as a nation and its people will be all included in that nation will be uh, saved. Though, of course, God will extract the rebels from it as the judgment in Ezekiel tells us about but all that remain will be saved. And this exercise of repentance and faith is their first step of life with God, life of salvation, or as we would say, life first the first step of Christian life. 
And so these people are relying upon God's forgiveness. And that's, what's, uh, that's what verse 18 through 20 is all about. So that's where I want to, can't spend a lot of time because we have the table this morning, but I want to focus your attention because all this history kind of sets the stage. Their wickedness, God's, the request for God to, to shepherd them, Micah's request that way. And now the people are going to respond and God is going to forgive them. The question in verse 18 is this, who is a God like you? That is a rhetorical question. It states a fact. What is the fact? There is no God like our God. There is no God like the Christian God. There is no God like the true God of the Jews. Our God is a God who does with sin seven things, according to this text. He does seven things with our sin, according to this text. And as we come to the Lord's table, we recognize the benefit of hindsight that God does these seven things in Christ. And that's why we come to the table to celebrate and to remember Christ and to proclaim his death until he returns. So God does these seven things. Number one, God pardons iniquity. He pardons iniquity. That is, when we say pardon, we mean take away. It's, it's like to lift off, to lift up, to take it off of our shoulders. He lifts up or takes away our iniquity. He removes the sin from our record and the guilt that goes with it. We know that he does that in Christ and in the cross, but Micah doesn't know how to say that because those events surrounding Jesus of Nazareth have not yet occurred and the revelation has not yet come. So he removes the sin and guilt. Now, iniquity, when you look at the word iniquity, you might think that it just means the same exact thing as sin. Maybe that's just how you thought of it, but actually iniquity is not limited to that idea. Iniquity is not necessarily synonymous with the bad things we do. Iniquity means the guilt of those things. And I'm not talking about the emotion of guilt. I'm talking about when you do bad thing X and you displease God, that incurs for yourself guilt. You are guilty before God, whether you feel like it or not. You could be the coldest of cold-hearted criminals, and you're still guilty for what you've done, okay? Good if you have the feeling of guilt, that's wonderful, but you've got to also come past that because you recognize no feelings of guilt, no tears that you can shed, no matter how many, will atone for your sin, like we sang in the song Rock of Ages just a few moments ago. It's the guilt that Micah is talking about. There is no God who lifts off the guilt of our sins like the God of the Bible. Where else in the world can you find a God who takes away the guilt of sin? There is none. There's no, there's no other religion. There's no other system that provides a suitable or realistic or meaningful way in which sins can be pardoned or removed from us. God removes that guilt. Secondly, 
He is a God who not only pardons iniquity, but it says here, what? He passes over transgressions. Those offenses, the transgression is a, a crossing of a line. He, he, he passes over those. You know, it's the glory of a, a great man to overlook offenses. Yeah, not to be small, not to be petty. God, of course, overlooks our offenses because he's put them into Christ, onto him. But he passes over. You know, he doesn't have to do that. Um, I'm saying apart from, hypothetically, let's say, apart from Christ, does God have to allow a substitute to stand in our place? No. He passes over our transgressions. He pardons our iniquity. And there's no obligation on his part to do that. Number three, God does not retain his anger forever. Have you ever felt that God's angry with you? He's angry with the wicked every day, the psalmist says. But he does not retain his anger forever. For those who have come to him in faith, he, his anger is dissipated. Think of this. Although God was angry with his people for their sin, he always planned to pardon the penitent and restore them to a state of grace. So he does not retain his anger forever. Why did he want to restore them to a state of grace? Because God, number four, delights in mercy. Are you following along with me here? This is in verse, at the end of verse 18. Because he delights in mercy, does not retain his anger forever. This is God's character. He, God does not offer mercy, uh, what's the word, uh, in a stingy fashion. He delights in it. It's not like a last resort for God to offer mercy. Mercy demonstrates God's kindness. It shows his greatness. It evidences his love, manifests his faithfulness. Great offenses are forgiven by a greater God because he delights in mercy. Number five, it says that God will have compassion. He will again have compassion on us. God will have compassion. What a gracious and kind God we serve. Toward people who do not deserve compassion and mercy, he shows it anyway. Number six, he subdues our iniquities. That's an interesting way of saying it. It's like he attacks the iniquities that we have and he subjugates them under his power. He subjects them and the guilt of them so that they cannot do us harm. Some translations have it this way, that he will tread our sins underfoot. It's a military term, you know? He stomps them down so that they cannot rise up against us, and he utterly destroys them. They will have no power against us. The power of sin is broken in Christ. Sins and guilt are like an enemy of our souls, and God defeated them. In the cross, God has done that. He subdues our iniquities. So notice this, would you? He pardons our iniquity. He passes over our transgressions. He does not retain his anger forever. He delights in mercy. He will have compassion. He subdues our iniquities. And finally, number seven, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what God does in Christ. That's what we remember here at the table this morning. When we come to Jesus, when we 
turn away from our sin and turn to Christ, and we believe in Him, the Bible promises us that God forgives, He pardons, He has compassion, He delights in mercy, He subdues our iniquities, and He casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. One of the things that people have trouble with is the notion of forgiveness, both what God has done toward us and what they should do toward others. Sometimes people say, uh, I, I can't forgive myself. Well, you're no better than God, are you? Uh, if God can forgive, then how can you not? Well, you're just being selfish by saying that you cannot forgive. And uh, people say that about their relationships with others. I can't forgive them. Oh, so would you like God to apply that to you? That same method? Uh-uh, I don't think so. No, God casts our sins into the depths of the sea. So if they're in Christ, if they're washed under the blood of Christ, why do you dredge them back up again? Is it even possible to dredge them back up again? God removes all of our sins by throwing them into the deepest ocean. Now, this doesn't mean that you can go deep sea diving and go retrieve them again. You know what I'm saying? It, it's a metaphor it's a picture, a figure of speech to say that the, the sins are gone forever. I mean, it's like you standing on the shore of, of the Atlantic Ocean, looking out to the east and the north and thinking, my sins have been dumped into the Laurentian abyss at nearly 20,000 feet deep. I have no hope of finding them there. There is no deep sea submersible, no sonar search vessel that can find our sins again. It's as if they've been thrown into the Mariana Trench and Challenger Deep at deeper than 35,000 feet under the surface of the ocean, the deepest known part of the surface of the earth. In fact, our sins are gone farther than that if they are washed away in Christ. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's table. He will have compassion. He will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And then finally, you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham. Kind of come bringing us back to the reality of the meaning of this passage that he's talking about Israel and God's promises to Israel, which he has sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let me just close with the reading of a couple portions. First in Isaiah 43, 25. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. It says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And then Psalm 103. Psalm 103, and then we will share the table together after this. Psalm 103, starting in verse number 8. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He will not deal with us according to our sins, nor punish us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. May God be praised. He has cast our sins into the depths 
of the deepest ocean. Heavenly Father, we close our Bible exposition time with this prayer of thanks that you pardon iniquity and subdue our sins and remove our guilt and are merciful and compassionate and gracious and long-suffering and kind. There is no God like you. There is no salvation like the salvation that we have as Christians and that we proclaim to others to share with them freely. We thank you for this. May our remembrance at the table now be a sweet time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We will uh, bid those on the live stream uh, adieu for now, and uh, then we will have our remembrance at the table. Uh, I'd like to invite you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, not uh, uh, knowing that you're walking in any kind of uh, disobedience to the Lord, um, you know, I have uh, encouraged people who uh, are baptized to participate. Uh, if you are not baptized but soon intend to be, that's fine. If you are refusing that step, then, uh, hey, Brother Mike, could you bring me one as well? Thank you. Um, then, uh, you know, you should stay back from participating if you're not willing to be baptized to confess your salvation in Christ. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Save me a little walk back there. That reminds me to remind you that there is the elements. Uh, there are the elements there at the back table. If you'd grab one of those, I'll give you a moment to do that. As I just uh, remind us of First Corinthians chapter eleven and the uh, gravity of the matter of remembering the Lord's table. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And uh, to be clear, it is that death that Christ died when he made his soul an offering for sin, which then provided the benefits that we talked about from Micah chapter 7 this morning. So I want to make sure everybody has their uh, cup of uh, juice and also in the top there the wafer and that we can then participate I'm going to ask uh, Brother Ben, are you here? Yeah, there you are, Brother. If you would uh, just uh, raise up your voice and uh, pray for the bread, please. I'd appreciate that. Yeah, give these gentlemen a chance to uh, participate here. All right. Ben, please pray.
Amen. Thank you, Ben. So let's try to uh, extricate uh, our wafer there from the top. Let's get that top layer of cellophane and that open. All right. Remember on that night in which our Lord was betrayed, it says that he took bread and uh, most certainly not in a perfect circular flat shape like this, but he took it and broke off a piece and shared the loaf with his disciples and they broke off each a piece and what a nice picture that was of sharing together the same bread, the same loaf, which represented, as he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he told them to eat it in remembrance of him. Let us do so, beloved. Remember also that the Lord told us that we're to partake of this cup and of this bread in a manner in which we examine ourselves. He doesn't say, get yourself perfect and then come to the table and take. He says, examine yourself. Make sure that you're walking with the Lord in a proper fashion, walking with the church, living in a harmony, and then you partake. That's the, that's the proper way to partake of the table in a self-examining way, not in a flippant way. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask our brother uh, John if he would uh, rise to his feet and uh, raise his voice and pray and thanks for the cup, please. So on that same night, and again, he took the cup after supper and shared it with the disciples, perhaps out of one chalice, so that they could remember him. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of their sins, and drink all of it in remembrance of me. Thank you, God, and 
And Father, for a time to remember, a time to proclaim the Lord's death and all of its blessings, to remember the costs and to remember the benefits. For we are forgetful people and often can lose track of why we are here and what we're all about. This helps us to remember, so thank you. Lord, may your grace guide us the rest of this morning and this day. May we live for Christ in a a more solid way in these upcoming days until our next Lord's Table remembrance. Watch over us, we ask, and help us to walk uprightly to honor and glorify you. And Lord, thank you that today we have uh, two or three people who have not been able to attend our fellowship for some time. We are grateful, Lord, that they are able to be back. The circumstances have adjusted so that they can do that. And Lord, we look forward to uh, that more in the future with several others who have indicated they will be able to rejoin our in-person fellowship It's a great blessing and an encouragement after a long season of trial and tribulation. Help us indeed truly to be thankful for that as well as all the other benefits that you have poured out upon us. Thank you for your love in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.